Thank you, Emily and Max, for reading Scripture for us as we finish out this series on Philippians. I'd like to uh, pray for a moment, and in particular, we're lifting up the McTiernan family. Cindy McTiernan's mom died just a few days ago, and, and tomorrow we're going to have a, a graveside service. So I hope that during the week you'll lift up Cindy and Gordon and their boys during this time. In addition, uh, Christy mentioned the Global Leadership Summit that's happening on Thursday and Friday. This is your last chance. I would really want to put in a plug uh, just to urge those of you who are wondering if this is for you. You don't have to be a leader who stands in front of many people to get a whole lot of uh, good things and benefits that come from the Global Leadership Summit. Really, it's aimed at anybody who has influence who would like to increase your ability to use that influence for impact in this world. And I would urge you to go ahead and sign up, and you will find that there are sessions that appeal to all kinds of people. So during the week, I've had a few people who've called me and said, is this really for me? And you can, only you can decide that for yourself, but if you have influence on coworkers, on family members, on a team of people who work together in any kind of project, the Global Leadership Summit has something to offer you that will help you do that even better over the next year. Let's stop and pray for a moment. Father God, thank you for the way that you meet in the midst of your people, and even as we gather through the means of technology and internet this morning, I pray that you would gather our hearts and our minds together as one church, that we would have a sense of our belonging together because we belong to Jesus, and that through focusing on Jesus and looking into your word, that you would give us a greater sense of your presence in our lives. This morning, help us to, over, to understand that overwhelming sense of peace that you promised that goes beyond the senses, beyond the ability even to understand, where we know nonetheless that your strong arms are around us. We pray for the McTiernan family and ask that you will stand with them, that you will bless them, that you will comfort them, and that you will strengthen them in the right time. Guide us this week as we go about the normal activities that we have for whatever is normal right now, for those who are working at home, for those who are working in an office, for those who are really struggling during this time. We pray that each of us would be able to draw near to you and that you would hear our cries and our prayers and that you would draw near to us. Help us to live out our faith, too, in the midst of a discouraging time for many people, and not to squander the time, but to ask what you are up to and what you are doing in the midst of the silent spaces and the changed paces that we have. We ask that your blessing would fall on all of the North River family and all of your people throughout the world who call on the name of Jesus. It's in his mighty name that we pray. Amen. Several years ago, Sue and I were taking our first trip together outside of the United States, and I remember being advised by a seasoned traveler to change some of my personal habits when we knew that we would be walking in large crowds where pickpockets knew how to identify American tourists. We're actually not that hard to figure out. We're usually the ones wearing the loud shirts and, and the caps that have some reference to the United States. 
So I would carry my passport and my license in a holder with a string around my neck and it would go underneath my shirt. And I would take my wallet out of my back pocket and I would put it in a front pocket or I'd take all the money that I was carrying and put it in a money clip and put it in a front pocket where it was harder to be disturbed or harder to access. We would be careful to avoid handling any wad of cash in plain view. The simple reason for all of this is that we were adopting steps of practical wisdom for operating in the presence of thieves. So extra care was called for when walking in the presence of people who wanted to separate us from the things that we thought were valuable because there are people who study the art or separating people from things that they treasure. Now I bring this up today because we come to the opening verses of chapter 4 of Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And Paul begins to offer some practical instruction about living out our faith in the presence of what he called in Philippians 3.18, the enemies of the cross of Christ. While his main topic had to do with seeking the peace of God, this context adds a note of urgency or need for extra care to the way that we apprehend this particular section of Scripture. So while this morning's message is titled, Seeking the Peace of God, perhaps the longer, fuller topic ought to be, Seeking the Peace of God While Being Watched by Enemies of the Cross. That is literally the context and the picture that Paul paints for us. Welcome back to North River Church. Over the past six weeks, we have been working through a series of messages called Recalculate that builds on the observation that two years of house arrest had caused the Apostle Paul to recalculate the priorities, methods, and goals of his ministry. And so he was also challenging church members to recalculate the way that we live out our faith. And that extends right on down to you and me today. So his letter to the Philippian Christians was passing on wisdom about how to recalculate the patterns of our lives in the midst of great societal change. I find this advice tremendously encouraging because since the middle of March, you and I have been recalculating the daily patterns of our lives and sometimes those patterns have changed week by week or even day by day. We are learning to live with new patterns, with new habits, while abandoning old and older habits that don't fit the current realities of this COVID-19 world. We have embraced several cultural changes. We hope that this season will end, yet we also live with this growing sense that as we move forward, some things will simply not go back to the way that they once were, and we are recalculating how to live out the values of our Christian faith, most important of all. So here's the key idea that I want to get across this morning. Maintaining the peace of God in a hostile world takes discipline. The payoff is always worth the effort. Maintaining peace doesn't just fall upon you, it takes discipline. I'd like to talk for a few minutes about how to seek the peace of God in the presence of what the Bible calls enemies of the cross of Christ. Here's the first way, by always standing firm. So Paul writes in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Some of this challenge builds on the posture that Paul wrote about at the end of chapter 3 that we talked about last Sunday. Forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, pressing on toward the goal. This is the language of a sprinter or a long-distance runner leaning toward the finish line at the end of the race. 
the motion is forward-leaning. This is not a person who allows himself or herself to get stuck looking backward. Now, Paul pairs that with a battlefield image, a second image that comes together. It's the image of standing firm in the Lord. The word therefore at the beginning of verse 1 takes us back to the context of Philippians 3.18. As you live out your faith, stand firm, knowing that you live in the context of some who see themselves as enemies of the cross meaning they scoff at Jesus. They scoff at the things that you hold dear. They make fun of the concepts that you and I tend to lean on. They think of Christianity simply as a crutch for the weak rather than something that gives added strength to those who are the strong. Do you remember my opening story about changed behaviors in the presence of thieves? We shift our posture and some of our behaviors in that kind of context. So it is with living out our faith in the context of being watched by enemies of the cross. The challenge to stand firm also fits three hopeful realities for Christians. First is that our citizenship is in heaven. Second is that we are awaiting the return of the Savior. And the third is that God is in the process of transforming us to be more like Jesus. This is where Paul ended the previous passage at the end of chapter 3. Can you sense the urgency that is tied to this challenge to stand firm? We must stand firm because we live in a challenging world with challenging people. We must stand firm because God is still at work, changing us and changing the world. That reminds me of North River's vision statement. People being forever changed by God's love and daily changing the South Shore and beyond for Jesus. We are not involved in a static faith. We are involved in a faith that moves forward and takes ground. And Jesus is always at work through his people. Everything that Paul wrote in Philippians 4, verses 2 through 9, tells us how to stand firm. So let me come back to that main idea. Maintaining the peace of God in a hostile world takes discipline. The payoff is always worth the effort. The second way that we seek the peace of God is by practicing unity. So Paul begins to name names here. He's writing to a specific church in the city of Philippi. He knows the church. He's heard about things that are going on there. In verse 2 he writes, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. We are told some very positive things about these two women, Euodia and Syntyche. They contended for the gospel at Paul's side. Paul considers them his co-workers. He's lending to them a term of high regard that's, that gives the sense that, that he sees them as equals and partners in ministry. And their names are written in the book of life. Yet it is obvious for verse 2 that something is wrong. They have hit a stumbling block. They have, been, they have been carrying on some kind of hot disagreement or maybe even a feud that is worth mentioning, at least in the eyes of Paul. So Paul calls them out on this because this kind of dispute does not fit the category of wise practices for someone who is living out their faith while being watched by people who are scoffing at Christian faith or who are looking at some kind of weakness in order to try and take the whole project down. 
Paul never points out the nature of their dispute. He actually honors them in that way, but he calls for them to be of the same mind. People who are standing firm in the presence of enemies learn to settle their differences quickly. Falling out of fellowship over trivial matters is unthinkable to Paul for people who are on a mission. So think of yourself and, and, and our whole church as a group of people who are on mission for Jesus. And Paul is saying, if we really understand the urgency of the mission, we learn to settle our picky little disputes quickly, get over ourselves, get over our hurt, and to make peace with other people. Not waiting till every little thing is satisfied and you're happy with every aspect of every other person. He's saying most of this stuff just doesn't matter in the long run when you consider the urgency of the life and death stakes of people understanding the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Notice the tender, affectionate terms that Paul uses while he was calling them out over this. He begins by saying, My brothers and sisters... This isn't just meaningless language. He's saying, I identify with you. You're my family. And then he adds, whom I love and long for. He calls them my joy and my crown. Paul is saying these people in the church in Philippi matter to him. If he was writing to us today, he would say, people of North River, do you understand who you are? You're my brothers and sisters in the faith. You're my family. I love you. I long for you. I, I, I long to be with you. I miss seeing you face to face. My joy and crown will be seeing that you live out your faith well and that you honor Jesus in every situation in life. Paul wants us to feel this way in the way that we regard each other and in the way that we regard the church as a whole. It doesn't mean that you and I will never get our feelings hurt somewhere along the way, but he is saying people who are mature and people who understand the whole picture of what Jesus is doing and people who understand the stakes that are in play get over small things faster. This sends a message to us in the way that we manage disagreement. We have to understand that Christians will disagree with each other along the way, but we must not become disagreeable as we handle our disagreements. One theologian, J.A. Macher, writes it this way, a divided church is contrary to the nature of the very church itself. Maintaining the peace of God in a hostile world takes discipline. But remember, the payoff is always worth the effort. Here's the third way we do that, by trading anxiety for trust in the Lord. Paul picks this up in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to the Lord. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In this paragraph, Paul places one negative behavior amidst several positive values. The negative behavior then stands out. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, Paul knows that we will at times battle anxiety in life and that it's a very common thing. What he's beginning to do is give us a strategy for combating anxiety as it seeks to steal from us in life. 
The New Testament word for anxiety or worry in, in the Greek language that the New Testament was written in is the word merimnao. I only give you that because it's a very specific, important word. It's a compound word that comes from two words that are stuck together, the verb meritso, which means to divide, to separate, to cut into pieces, or to tear apart, and the noun new, which speaks of the mind. Put together, this concept means uh, to tear apart the mind. So anxiety is when the thoughts and worries and concerns of the world work on us in such a way that they begin to divide your mind or tear apart your mind. What a great description of being locked in the process of anxiety. Current studies tell us that Americans are the undisputed champions of anxiety today. PhD Robert Leahy writes that in any given year, 17% of us will have some form of anxiety disorder and that 28% of Americans will deal with this over the course of their lives. So if you deal with anxiety, you are not alone. You are not in a small camp. You're actually in a very large camp. And probably that camp is growing larger today the longer that this stressful period goes on. According to medical news today, 40 million people in the United States deal with some form of anxiety. Anxiety is a thief. It tears your mind apart. It robs you of peace. It steals your thoughts, your peace, your joy, and ultimately, if you go deeper into it, your confidence. Leahy adds that Americans are becoming more and more anxious by the decade. Well, this is not a psychology class, but anxiety is enough of a concern that Jesus, Peter, and Paul all wrote about it in the New Testament. When Jesus said, do not worry about your life in Matthew chapter 6, he used the same word that we find here for anxiety. When Jesus told Martha that she worried about the wrong things and that Mary had made the right, the right choice, he used the exact same concept. This New Testament concept shows up 19 times in 17 different sections of the New Testament. In contrast, Paul offers a four-step pathway that begins to lead us out of anxiety. And it's here in this paragraph of Scripture. First, practice the habit of rejoicing. Rejoicing over things that are good is healthy for us. Second, let your gentleness be evident to all. Gentleness combats anxiety in our lives. Third, remember that the Lord is near. He wants you to focus on His nearness, on His compassion, on His strength, more than all the stressful things in this world. And then the fourth step that begins to lead us away from that pattern is to pray. Pray about everything. And so Paul, Paul describes it with, uh, with these words when he talks about prayer. Uh, pray in every situation. Pray in prayers and petitions. Pray with thanksgiving. Present all of your requests to God. And then, he says, the peace of God is the next topic that flows from that. You see, maintaining the peace of God in a hostile world takes daily discipline. And the payoff is worth the effort. Here's the first, fourth way that we do that. By trusting in the promises of God. Verses 7 and 9 are key to all of this. Verse 7 says, And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
verse 9 adds, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, there are three promises that are wrapped up in those two verses. The first promise is that a touch of God that passes all understanding will touch your life. This is the promise of God's supernatural presence in some way making himself known and touching you in a very personal way. This presence of God that transcends all understanding is not meant to be mysterious or spooky, but rather it is hard for us to fully explain or for others to even explain away because the presence of God is so encompassing. And there are times when God makes his presence known to you, when you are in the most difficult circumstances of life, and yet you call out to him. There is not a place in this world that God cannot reach into and cannot wrap you up in his love. You are not alone. He wants you to know this. Here's the second promise. God's peace will guard us. Paul has in mind uh, hearts and minds that cannot be conquered because they are so wrapped up in the peace of God. What kind of peace is he talking about? He's not just talking about the absence of conflict. Here he's talking about the Old Testament concept of shalom, the fullest kind of peace that we know. It speaks of a well-being that comes from right relationship with God and that extends into every arena of life, making things better in every arena of life, or at least guarding your hearts and minds as you walk through great periods of danger and difficulty so that while everybody else is a mess, you can still have this characteristic of peace that has attached itself to your heart and to your mind while you walk through the valley of the shadow of death or the valley of great difficulty or the valley of COVID today. This is a picture of how God's peace can carry us through greatly difficult times. For the person who is walking through great difficulty with your business, for the person who's going through the heartbreak of some kind of family despair, as well as the person who might be in a prison cell like Paul was as he was writing these words. Even in the midst of the greatest storm of your life, God's peace guides, guards, and galvanizes those whose hearts and minds are fixed on Him. That's the second promise. The first one is this touch of God that goes beyond everyone else's understanding. The second is that God's peace will guard us. The third promise is that the God of peace Himself will be with you. That same theologian I quoted earlier, Alec Motyer, writes that detached from the Bible, the word peace becomes something like a spiritual marshmallow, all soft and sweet but without much substance. But in the Bible, we discover a peace of God that is full of strength and vigor. This is what God is promising to you and me. This is the peace of the risen Christ who appears to the disciples showing up in a locked room after the resurrection saying, peace be with you. This is the God of peace who makes peace with sinners who were prior in rebellion against God. The God of peace is also the God of power who breaks down the strongholds of life. This peace is the shalom of God that seeks your well-being in every aspect of your life. And then there's one more, a fifth way that we seek peace in the presence of the enemies of the cross by maintaining the conditions of peace. Let me stress this one again. This is really, really important. By you and me maintaining the conditions of peace in our lives. Verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. 
Skip ahead to verse 8. Paul writes, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So what are the conditions of peace? The first condition is a rejoicing heart. There's a responsibility that you and I have to rejoice in the Lord, to remember and to recognize the things that are good, the things that he has provided. And when we go through the process of rejoicing, it tends to lift us up out of some of the anxiety and sadness of life. We've already covered this a little bit in this series, the the power of rejoicing, the, the repetition that Paul has of this concept of rejoicing and joy. But I just have to say one more thing. This cannot be stressed enough that you and I need to rejoice daily, continually. Here's the second condition. By forming a disciplined mind. This is not simply being positive while ignoring all that is negative. This is a disciplined approach to guarding the gates of your mind so that the mind is not simply overwhelmed by the world's fascination with the negative. They say in the TV and print news world, if it bleeds, it leads. You know what that means? What grabs most people's attention is the dark, the negative, the tragic, the destructive things of this world. That's the mindset of the culture that we live in. So it takes a very disciplined approach to turn away from the negative in order to be reminded of the positive things that God has put before us this day and every day. It is not that we stick our heads in the sand and ignore times of trouble or things that are going wrong. Rather, we refuse to allow difficult things to blur our eyes and to blind us to the blessings that are all around us. That takes discipline in the midst of a culture of negativity. And the more we take this disciplined approach to the mind, we maintain the peace of God. So the first condition is a rejoicing heart. The second condition is a disciplined mind. And here's the third, a determination to put lessons into practice. So Paul writes, whatever you have learned from me, put it into practice. Whatever you have learned from Paul, from Jesus, from any of the other apostles, or from some other wiser, older Christian in your life, Put those things into practice. Whatever you've learned from Paul or for those who walked with Jesus, put those into practice. Whatever you've seen in Paul or in Jesus or in some other wiser, older Christian who has been modeling faith before you, put these things into practice. The things that we learn, hear, and see are the lessons that someone else has been crafting for us through daily patience, through daily consistency, so that you and I can watch. And even better than the peace of God, here's the promise. The God of peace will be with you. As we seek to maintain the peace of God, if we truly follow these conditions, the extra benefit is that God himself draws near, guards your heart, guards your mind, guards your soul, And you and I are able to walk through even the most difficult circumstances of life with the peace of God and the God of peace watching over our every step. One last time. 
Maintaining the peace of God in a hostile world takes discipline. And the payoff is always worth the effort. Lord God, may you bless this teaching from your word. May you give us the ability to practice the shalom of God and the discipline of mind and the rejoicing hearts that are needed to walk in the light of these truths and to not cave into the negativity or even the anxiety of our days. Increasingly lift us out of dark times and allow the joy of the mind and the joy of the heart to be so strong within us because our, our relationship with you and our understanding of, of your power in our lives and of all the good that is also around us, that we will lift others out of great darkness too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Christy mentioned earlier, we're going to celebrate communion together today. And I'd like to read just a few words from Luke chapter 22. It happens to be my favorite description of the Passover scene and the first communion between Jesus and his disciples because it's not just describing instructions, it's describing what happened on that particular night. Luke 22 verse 14 says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so he had spread out the, the cup of wine, sharing some with each one. Verse 19 adds, And then he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This body... This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. See, what Jesus was doing here was he was modeling the very thing that we just talked about. In the midst of even the one who would betray him and the darkness of knowing that he was going to the cross, Jesus was celebrating what God was up to. He was celebrating the peace of God that would invade human hearts and human minds as we know that we're forgiven and as the work of the cross becomes applied to our lives. So when you and I share communion, even in a situation like this where we're each in our own homes or somewhere in a different place, he invites us to stop for a few moments and if you're prepared, do this with me now. And if not, uh, in a few moments when you've had the opportunity to gather some elements. And we'll celebrate together. It says that Jesus took bread. And he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And so when we eat whatever kind of bread or matzah or cracker that you have found in your house today, and we attach it to it, we are remembering that Jesus came in the flesh, and that his body was broken for you and me.
So let's do this in remembrance of him. And when we drink from the fruit of the vine that Jesus said he wouldn't take part in again until the kingdom comes in all of its fullness, we are remembering that he shed his blood for us. On the very next day after sharing this cup with his disciples, he would do the same thing. And they would be reminded of how Jesus had shed his own blood for them that, forgives, that pays for the forgiveness of our sins so that you and I don't have to die for our sins. It's the cup of redemption where he buys us out of our sin, out of our slavery, out of our difficulties, and gives us new life. So we drink in remembrance of Jesus. Thank you, God, for always reminding us of the joy that comes from following Jesus, that our sins have been paid for no matter what we've done, no matter what we will do as we strive to be more like Jesus and to lean into your power to transform us, we know that you forgive us of every wrong, of every mistake, of every moment when our minds are distracted and we do the wrong thing. Thank you for allowing us to live in great grace that allows us to lean further into transformation knowing that you are making us more like Jesus, that we are seeing the heart and mind of Jesus formed inside of our friends who know him and who are being disciplined about Christian life. Allow us this day to walk in grace and in greater freedom, freedom of mind, freedom of heart, freedom of soul. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like to invite you to uh, continue supporting North River through your generosity and your giving. There are a number of ways you can do that. You, you can pull out your cell phone and you can text North River CC and the numbers 77977 and the following prompts and that will take you to a, a portal where you can, you can give online. You can do that through the North River website, northriverchurch.org or you can do that through your bank's online bill pay. Of course, you can always mail in a check. You have been very, very faithful during this COVID time and it's encouraging and I just want to urge you to keep that up because it makes a difference in how we carry out our church life during this season. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning and my hope is that you have a very blessed week during this week and that you will know the peace of God that overrules the anxiety of life.